The Guardian. One morning, Gregor Samsa woke from fitful slumber. He found that he had changed into an enormous insect. And as he lay there on his back, which resembled an armored breastplate, by raising his head slightly, he could just see his brown, protruding belly made up of a series of rigid, arched segments. The bed covers looked like they could slip at any moment. His tiny legs, compared to his otherwise considerable girth, were pitifully thin. They flapped around helplessly as he looked on. What's happened to me? he wondered. As strange as it would be to find you turned from a human into an insect as Franz Kafka imagined, real metamorphosis from tadpoles to frogs or maggots to flies is almost as bizarre. People tend to be surprised that a caterpillar will turn into a butterfly. But perhaps just as surprising, but less often noted, is the idea that a butterfly lays an egg that turns into a caterpillar. So how exactly do animals undergo metamorphosis? How do they dismantle their bodies and rebuild them into entirely new forms? And why? Certainly requires a lot of energy to go through this really, really extreme and really, in many cases, very abrupt change um, between these different life stages. And so you would think that actually it might be uncommon because it is so difficult in many ways or it requires such a big change. But the idea for why it is so common is really about competition. When insect uh, biologists first got interested, it was speculated that an insect having three markedly different body forms might actually need three whole separate sets of instructions. I'm Natalie Grover, a science correspondent of The Guardian, and this is Science Weekly. Oh yes, uh, yeah, I like, uh, there's a very strange beetle that lives around here called an oil beetle. And uh, it's a parasite of uh, solitary bees. And uh, it's actually not at all common and very striking in appearance. And it most certainly does undergo metamorphosis. But when it comes out as an adult, it doesn't have any wings. Uh, My name's Stuart Reynolds, and I'm a professor at Bath University, and I've been interested in insects all my life. Stuart really does know a lot about insects, and as the majority of them go through metamorphosis, I wanted to get his insight into this evolutionary magic trick. Metamorphosis uh, is something that people have been fascinated with ever since Aristotle, and the way that we usually use the word is that we're talking about an abrupt and quite quickly accomplished change in the shape of the animal concerned and the fact that the two different forms have uh, very different behaviors and habits. It's as though they uh, occupied different niches, really. But actually, there are two different kinds of metamorphosis that insects undertake. There are some insects like um, grasshoppers, which hatch out looking like little adults, except that they don't have wings. But there's another kind of metamorphosis which 
actually the majority of insects undertake. The difference between the immature form and the adult is very great. And the immature insects look like little grubs or maggots or caterpillars. And they're totally different from the adult. And the difference in shape is so great that you have to have a stage interposed between them. And we usually call this a pupa or a chrysalis. During the time that the insect is a pupa, it's going to have to undergo very great changes in its body form. And so could you sort of walk us through the typical journey from egg to adult in one of these extreme cases? So the insect lays an egg. The creature that develops inside that egg turns into a larva like a caterpillar. And then the caterpillar is highly adapted to eating and growing. In fact, it eats like crazy. It does absolutely nothing else. It periodically has to replace the hard exoskeleton on the outside because it's inextensible. It can't be stretched anymore. And so the insect actually grows a a new cuticle, we call it, uh, a new skin inside the old one. And then the old one splits and the, the new caterpillar comes out. And you go through a series of molts like this, maybe five molts is pretty typical for a a butterfly caterpillar. And then uh, somehow the caterpillar knows that it's big enough and uh, it stops eating, it stops growing. And instead of molting into another caterpillar, it molts into something that looks a bit like an adult, but actually isn't very mobile. We call this a pupa. And at this time, uh, a great deal of restructuring has to take place. The pupa has things that look a bit like wings, but they aren't flappable. They wouldn't be able to fly with them. It has things that look like adult legs, but uh, you couldn't walk on them. And lots of other structures have to be reorganized and new muscles have to be grown. Bits of nervous system have to be put in place so that the adult insect will be able to know where it is and what it's doing. All of this time during the life of the pupa, uh, there's a great deal of breaking down of the old tissues has to go on. And it takes uh, almost as long as the caterpillar spent growing in size to turn the fully fed caterpillar into a proper adult. And that's the pupal stage. Sometimes the pupa lives inside a silken cocoon. Sometimes it lives under the ground. But um, the changes that go on at that time are pretty similar, whatever. And eventually the pupa is now ready to emerge as an adult. So it molts again, and what comes out is an adult that we would easily recognize as being a proper butterfly. And as an adult, it has a completely different lifestyle. Instead of being concentrated on growing, instead it's interested really only in sex. I can't help but think um, it it sounds like an ideal life. You spend half of it eating and the next half just focusing on sex. So that 
Sounds like a good deal to me. Well, I mean, it's been a very successful strategy. So there you go. One of the things you uh, talked about earlier is that somehow it knows that now it's time to start the process to become a butterfly. I want to focus on that. You know, does it just wake up one day and think about, all right, today's the day I'm going to change my life completely? This is something we don't know quite so much about. It's pretty clear that the insect somehow knows how big it is. Partly, this is because it has stretch receptors inside its body that say, oh, you're getting a bit fat now. <laughs> and so uh, they, they know that they're big enough. But actually, when you think about it, the way that a stretch receptor works is that it's stretched between two bits of the outside of the body. And every time the insect molts, they're going to be reset in their ideas about how big is big. So somehow the insect has to know how many times it's already molted as well. And we really don't have a very good idea about that. So the, the basic idea is that the insect knows how big it is, and then it decides it's going to molt. And what it does then, I think, is utterly fascinating. It turns out that the insect has a hormone which it stops releasing when it is big enough, and it's called the juvenile hormone. Basically, the role of the juvenile hormone is to stop metamorphosis happening. As you can imagine, you know, quite a few people since the 1930s have heard about juvenile hormone and thought it would be great if we could put that in a bottle and sell it. <laughs> but, but, but of course, uh, it's a hormone that is uh, really only found in these jointed limb animals, the arthropods, which is basically um, crustaceans and insects. For insects, once this gatekeeper, the juvenile hormone, stops being produced, the process of metamorphosis can begin. For the most extreme cases, like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, in the pupil stage the insect needs to disassemble itself and rebuild a totally different form, reallocating materials and turning them into new legs or muscles or wings. So I asked Stuart what role genetics play in this biological reprogramming. When insect uh, biologists first got interested in this, which was really in the opening years of the 20th century, it was speculated that an insect having three markedly different body forms, larva, pupa, and adult, might actually need three whole separate sets of instructions on how to form those three different kinds of bodies. The idea was uh, you'd have three separate genomes all combined into one. Well, you know, that's what genes do. They tell the body how it should develop, what activities should be going on. So the idea wasn't a completely stupid one, but actually it turns out to be wrong. It turns out that the larva, the pupa, and the adult, they're using the same set of instructions to make their respective bodies. If you think about this in a simple human analogy, if you're a building firm, you employ the same set of builders and the same kinds of building tools to make a house 
or a factory or a skyscraper. The techniques are all the same. The blueprints are a bit different. Uh, they just tell you what to do and when to do it. And so the tools you actually need to make the, the, the larva, the pupa and the adult are all the same. What really is different is that there's a master gene in each case that then feeds down onto a, a very complex interacting system of feedbacks that gives you the use of all of these different tools and instructions. What now? wondered Grigor, peering into the darkness. He soon discovered that he wasn't able to move at all. And yet, he didn't find this in the least surprising. Although what did strike him as peculiar was that he had been able to get around on these spindly little legs in the first place. Apart from that, he felt relatively well. Despite, and this is a slight spoiler, things not ending particularly well for Gregor, metamorphosis is surprisingly widespread and not just in insects. Metamorphosis is, you know, extremely common in animals, actually much more common than I think most people realize. So something like half of animals actually go through metamorphosis. You know, some of the most famous examples and the examples that we've been focusing on recently are things like amphibians. So the frog life cycle is a really classic example of metamorphosis where they look, you know, in many ways, very much like a fish in their earlier phases. And then they transform into an animal that, you know, has limbs and, in many cases, lives on land. And honestly, if you found these different forms and didn't actually witness that they transformed into each other, I think it'd be really hard to, to really match up larval forms to their adult forms. You know, it's certainly a pro problem when we think about fossils where we don't actually capture that transition. So it's extremely common in the animal kingdom, but it's also uh, really extreme in terms of the amounts of change that happen between these larval forms and their, and their adult forms. So why do animals even bother going through this huge change? This was a question I put to Anjali Goswami, a professor at the Natural History Museum in London. Why metamorphosis is so common is a really interesting question um, because it is really extreme. You know, it certainly requires a lot of energy to go through this really, really extreme and really, in many cases, very abrupt change um, between these different life stages. And so you would think that actually it might be uncommon because it is so difficult in many ways or it requires such a big change. But the idea for why it is so common is really about competition um, and competition specifically between the young of a species and its adult stages. So you can imagine if, you know, if the juveniles or the babies eating or living in the exact same way as the adult forms, there could be a lot of competition between them for the same resources, right? And obviously that's going to really disadvantage the young. But by having a completely different lifestyle, it actually means that they can really specialize for a very different life, very different diet, very different habitat. Um, and that kind of removes that competition between different life stages of the same species. And, and can you think of any downsides? Certainly. I mean, I think it is a huge amount of energy um, really to essentially be one organism and then completely transform into essentially a different organism. You, know, you have to basically rebuild your body from scratch twice. And that's a really energetically expensive thing to do. And it's really why when we think about it, you know, our natural inclination is to think, wow, that's a pretty crazy thing to do. As well as eliminating competition, Anjali and her team investigated if metamorphosis could also play a role in evolution. 
Using salamander skulls from the Natural History Museum collection, Anjali and her team measured skull shapes of 148 species to learn about how salamanders evolved, depending on their developmental stages. We generated CT scans for all of these species. So we, you know, we take our specimens, we stick them in, the, in these micro CT scanners. And then what we did is we used an approach where we basically put 3D points across the skulls of all of these different um, species. And we, uh, we use that to basically find a way of describing the skull in really, really high detail so that we can then analyze it mathematically. So basically we pick out points across the skull and I think we had about a thousand points across the skull in these salamanders. And so we take those 3D landmarks, um, which are points that are comparable across all of our species, and we can then do a bunch of uh, different analyses to try and reconstruct the variation in the skull. So we can analyze those data to look at how shapes are different across different species, see if those differences in shapes across different species reflect uh, things like their habitat, so where they live, what they eat, or how they develop. And what we were able to show with our salamander data set is that species that are direct developers, the ones that have lost that metamorphic phase, they all cluster together in what we would call a morphospace, which is you know, a way of describing the different shapes of the skulls. And all the ones that go through metamorphosis are also really clustered in space. So they also show really similar shapes to each other in terms of their skulls. So really just by looking at skull shape, it's um, pretty, uh, it's, there's a really strong signal of how these different animals develop, which is really interesting. And you don't see the same pattern if you look at you know, where, they, where they live. So if just by skull shape alone, it's really hard to tell, say, an aquatic salamander from one that lives in the trees, from one that lives in the ground, um, but you have a much better chance of, of guessing or of figuring out what, how they develop just from the skull shape alone. And in fact, what we found was that the species that are metamorphic and also the species that are pedomorphic, meaning they stay in their larval form, evolve much faster and much more diversity than the ones that are direct developers, the one that lose that metamorphic phase altogether. And so that's really interesting, um, surprising how much slower these direct developers are evolving compared to the metamorphic forms. Finding that different parts of the skull don't always evolve in the same way and particularly for species that undergo metamorphosis, demonstrated to Anjali and her team that this transformational change was having a significant impact on their evolution and diversity. In terms of how metamorphosis might be shaping you know, the evolution of, of different species, you know, there's a lot of potential there in terms of why that could be, why it could be a promoting factor. One is that by kind of separating the life stages into different bins, maybe you can specialize more as an adult towards a certain habitat because you don't have to, you're not limited by what your young form has to do. You can just basically completely change what you're doing and that gives you a lot more flexibility. And one thing that we were able to show is um, when you look at the different parts of the skull and if you can break the skull up into the different bones that form the skull, the skull is formed by many different bones. And actually within the metamorphic species, what we were able to show is that different parts of the skull actually evolve more independently. So you might have, you know, certain things that are influencing the evolution of the parts that are related to the mouth, um, and they're evolving really independently of the parts that are involved with, say, the brain case or the attachment to the neck. 
and the species that are metamorphic or that goes through metamorphosis seem to show more independence in the evolution of skull parts than the ones that don't go through metamorphosis. And so maybe that means that those metamorphic species actually are just more evolutionarily flexible. And that's really interesting because, of course, then you can use that to try and understand, well, as the environment is changing rather quickly these days, as we go through this biodiversity crisis, are there some species that are going to do better than others based on how quickly they can evolve and how adaptable they might be? You mentioned the biodiversity crisis. How important is climate change in the evolution of salamanders? And you know, how does metamorphosis fit into that context? Oh, well, that's a great question. So we don't know yet, although some of the analyses that we're working on right now will actually be able to, to answer that question. So one thing that we're working on right now are our new methods where we can look at how temperature changes through time um, have affected rates of evolution and whether we see bursts of evolution when you know, things get hotter or things get uh, colder. That is, of course, at a, at a very, um, in many ways, a pretty gross scale because you have to look at you know, the data that we have for temperature through time is really global, whereas you know, animals live in quite small kind of microhabitats. And so we would love to be able to get at that you know, really finer scale of analyses, but I think uh, you know we we can increasingly try to figure out how climate is affecting salamander evolution. I think one thing that we can do is think about you know, just how the presence or absence of habitats is going to affect their evolution. And if you are a metamorphic species, you essentially have two completely different lifestyles that need to have a habitat preserved. And as we go through this period where, because of human activity, we're really decimating a lot of natural habitats and really just getting rid of areas where animals live, things that actually need, you know, kind of more complex or multiple habitats may actually have a harder time than, than ones that have a more simple or just a single habitat. Now, I don't know that's the case, but it's just a hypothesis that I think that we can think about and test um, whether or not, even though these metamorphic species seem to evolve more quickly in the past, whether the kind of extreme changes that are going on right now because of human activity are quite different than a lot of the changes that would have happened in the past in terms of the environment and by both fragmenting and destroying large areas of natural habitat. Um, you can imagine it would have a quite, an, a quite a severe effect on metamorphic species. I mean, hopefully they'll be okay. Hopefully they'll be able to be more adaptable as a product of being metamorphic, but, um, but I'm not sure that that's going to be the case. Huge thanks to both professors Anjali and Stuart for uncovering some of the mysteries of metamorphosis. If you have a burning scientific question that needs investigating, you can email us at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. That's it from us this week. See you back here next Tuesday. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.